How do you see the future of storytelling in this embodied internet? Imagine you are inside your favorite Netflix show. Maybe you can't change the plot so much, but you're surrounded by it. And you can move around with the characters and look at them from different angles and um, maybe go into rooms, certain rooms that are closed so you can explore and get different pieces of the story. And that's great, right? We love to consume media in interactive ways. These metaverse-like embodied internet experiences will facilitate a form of entertainment that I think take some of the interactive storytelling elements that are so successful with video games, but merge them with the cinematic, highly curated artistic experiences that we get from Hollywood, from, from these big production studios. And in, and in ways that'll be, that'll be great. That'll be transformative for better or worse, right? Double-edged sword. Hello world, this is SpartaCast. Hello class, I mean cast. Welcome to this special episode of SpartaCast. We are turning 30 as in 30 episodes. And I'm also not in my lab. I'm in, in the virtual version of my lab because we've got some sick kids at home. So I had to be around. But more importantly, this episode is all about moi. Well, not really. But instead of interviewing someone else, I am the guest on this episode. This is a crossover episode. I have a colleague, Roxana Gurju, who invited me to be on her podcast, the Creative Language Technologies Podcast, and speak about the metaverse. And I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to synthesize some of what I've learned from my great guests on SpartyCast so far. Why not cross post it? So here we are. You will, in a moment, hear my interview with um, Dr. Gurju, and I hope find, uh, find some themes that are informed by interviews with people like Timu Toke, who talked to me about his company, Wolf3D, that makes cross-platform avatars, Ready Player Me, or Ryan Feldman, who works for Immersed VR that creates virtual workspaces. Even going back to my episode with uh, Dr. Ramesh Rattan, Lakshmi Rattan, my dad. Um, and we talked about the history of Bell Labs and media technologies that kind of grew into the internet, web one, then web two, then web three. Now that we're talking about, you know, all of those are based on this infrastructure of um, increasing complexity in these telecommunication networks. So I was super excited to be able to synthesize. Also, as a professor, I love to hear myself talk. So I got to do a bit of that and I, I really enjoyed doing this. Should I do more? Are you a listener? Have you listened more than once? If you are, if you have, I invite you to invite me to your, to your interview. And maybe we can just post it here on SpartyCast. And that can be an occasional method of, um, of doing episodes here. Also, if you're a regular listener, please do our survey bit.ly slash sparty survey and mute uh your cell phones make sure your popcorn is uh being consumed in an inaudible way etc 
and enjoy this episode. Hello, Robbie. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Roxana or Karina? Roxana. Roxana. Okay. Z- Zoom leads us astray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is good. Okay. Well, let's start. So let's talk about the metaverse and Web 3.0. What are they and why should we care about them? Okay. So the metaverse is an idea that is similar to the idea of cyberspace as introduced by William Gibson in his fiction about 30 years ago. And he used the idea to or the term cyberspace to describe an embodied internet. I think he called it a mutual hallucination. We just, uh, I, I talk a lot about the metaverse with people and um, many people do know that, that the history kind of comes from this fictional space. Like many of the concepts we engage with in media, science fiction authors have known these things would be our reality in the future. Even Alan Turing knew that we would be talking to computers Um, in natural ways over a decade ago. Um, But the metaverse is a term that grew out of Neil Stevenson's novel, Snow Crash, to describe a similar idea, an embodied internet. Um, Instead of cyberspace though, the metaverse wasn't picked up to describe the internet writ large. It does seem to have been picked up recently to describe virtual reality-based networked experiences, interoperable networked experiences. That's a, that's a mouthful, mouthful of kind of jargony terms. So what do I mean by that? I mean, it's like the internet in the sense that you can sit down at some sort of technological device and connect with other people and share information through this technology, but it's normally happening, or at least uh, it's assumed to eventually normally be happening with a virtual reality headset or an augmented reality glasses or some sort of technology that embodies the user's uh, full apparatus, not just just our fingers to type and and maybe our voice to speak, but but our whole bodily movements lead to inputs and outputs that convey information that other people can use um, socially. So, So that's the metaverse. There's some key tenets I think involved in understanding how it works. Um, right now, you might think, oh, well, I, I know that. I, I've seen my kids play Fortnite or Minecraft, or um, I've even seen people in virtual reality walk around a place called VR chat in Avatar. So isn't that the metaverse? And the answer is, uh, it's part of the metaverse. But the vision for the metaverse is bigger. It's interoperable. And I think the easiest way to understand this is... Um, Right now, you can sit down at your computer and launch a web browser, and you can browse different websites. Well, in the not-too-distant future, you will sit down at a browser. Maybe it's the same web browser, but it will allow you to browse different virtual worlds. You can call it a metaverse browser, and that might look like Mozilla Firefox. Firefox has hubs. And I believe that that's a play they're making toward the future of this 3D internet. That's another way you can think about it. Um, But interoperability is essential here. So I get to be the same person as I go around different websites. If I log in through, let's say my Google or my Facebook account, that kind of becomes my passport to the web. Well, in the metaverse, you will not just be the same person by profile, by cookies, at the, at the infrastructure level, you can be the same avatar. 
I can walk around in my Professor Robbie kind of uh, professional clothing from one virtual world to another, or or maybe I want to change my avatar's clothing and be um, be hip, Robbie, if such a thing exists. I haven't been hip for a few years, but uh, but you know I get into my clubbing clothes and I go out with my friends, but it's actually the same facial structure. It's the same digital avatar of myself. Um, or or even I change it. I change it and it's a different gender, but it's still the fundamental. Um, identity running that the the program knows this is Robbie Robbie's coming along with not just these avatars and these outfits Robbie also has a wallet Robbie's traveling from virtual space to virtual space with a crypto wallet where he can spend um, ethereum or bitcoin uh, which more people might be familiar with though ethereum's pretty pretty widely understood at this point um, and then or hundreds of others you know i can spend my dogecoin um, both in minecraft and use the same avatar though less blocky in fortnite or in vr chat or in the hundreds of you know um, metaverse like spaces and once this truly is a metaverse we'll be able to jump around in them and um, and then also we'll be able to spend in them. And that's another, that's an important piece of the interoperability. And I think that's a good segue to your question about the web 3.0. Um, lots of people are talking about what that means. My, the easiest metaphor for understanding this, um, I think is that there are the, the third layer of the web is the financial layer. So the, the bottom layer is information, just general information, transferable information. The second layer is social, social media, um, being able to tag people and, um, and hashtags with this information that you're sending on the first layer. And now the third is financial, being able to own pieces of digital content, trade that those pieces of digital content with each other. And, um, and, and that is in many ways um, completely transformative. You might think, oh, right now I can, I can spend money. I can give someone my credit card number and they can charge me uh, to buy my groceries or to buy this song, which is a digital artifact. I, I own that song um, through that transaction. Yes, that's true. But you can't own the only copy of that song. But through technologies like the blockchain, which is essentially a, a public ledger of, um, of digital artifacts and then the transactions around those digital artifacts through the blockchain and through something called NFTs, which many of you might be familiar with, non-fungible tokens, um, you can own a, a single copy of a digital artifact. And that means I could own my avatar in its entirety. I could own, um, in the same way that I, I own things in the real world that other people can't have. I can own those. And that changes the nature of trade and value on the internet. Because if there's only one, it's a limited resource. So it retains a value. It can't just be copied. Um, it retains a value that other people might be willing to pay for. Because if I transfer ownership to you, then I no longer have it. Um, and I think that's that's about the limit of my... <laughs> ability to explain. Yeah. No, no, this, this was great. This is great. It was uh, very well explained uh, so that everybody understands. But we are actually going to uh, get to the idea of ownership a little bit later on, um, because I have some questions touching on that. But let's first talk about uh, this 3D internet that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. 
what exactly does it entail? When you say 3D is obviously, uh, you, you actually consider the visual modality, but is it going to go beyond that? Does it um, involve sound? Does it involve smell, taste, touch? That's a great question. I mentioned uh, the visual elements, 3D in the metaverse, but it's not restricted to that. And this is an important point that I touch on in my avatar psychology class. What is an avatar anyway? It is not just a visual representation of a human. It's, it's a mediated representation through any medium of interaction, not necessarily even digital. And so the reason that definition is, definition is important is it allows us to be more inclusive of different sensory experiences in our research, in our kind of production, development, design, as we think about what is an avatar, we can also think generally what is a virtual experience. So the way my, my voice is coming to you right now, I believe is unmodulated, but it's still digital. Zoom is transferring, you know, the physical waves, the sound waves into um, a physical piece of hardware that then translates it to digits that translates it back to physical hardware back to you. Along that process in that channel, there could be a modification. I could add a filter to make me sound a little more masculine or <laughs> um, to mask my age, etc. Um, and, and all of that becomes part of the avatar. And so then in the virtual environments, absolutely, we can think about other sensory experiences besides vision as being part of the metaverse. As for the other senses, though, taste and smell are the hardest. Maybe you've heard of smell-o-vision, where they try to, to at least have a few different smells that get um, or get introduced to the participant as or to the user as they're engaging with a virtual world. You walk into a, a field and you, I don't know, somebody puts a, a dryer sheet underneath your nose, um, and maybe that increases immersion. I believe that that's probably quite difficult to do well, um, though there are technologies I imagine that are more advanced doing that. But touch is the other one, and that's going to be the big one, haptic feedback. So in virtual reality, as I'm using the controllers, um, that, that's a movement. So what sense am I using? It's proprioception. I'm, I'm feeling where my body is. My, my body schema is an extension of my mind. Um, there's no, or, or in, in our field, at least, we don't think of a mind-body duality. We think of um, cognition as being fully embodied. And so the, the words that I say, the, um, the kind of visual appearances that I give off through my nonverbal gestures, they're all part of my kind of thinking apparatus. And now the digital information in the metaverse can influence how I interact with the controllers. You know, they shake. That's the obvious one. All my students go to that one immediately. I'm playing a game, I get shot, you know, the thing shakes, absolutely. Um, as these technologies become more advanced, you could, you could imagine many different types of physical interactions. We could, we could shake hands as, as I hold on to something. Okay, I'm holding my son's Lego here. Um, oh, I just shot an X-wing bullet. <laughs> this, this could be attached to an arm. It could give me some force feedback. And like a joystick, I could feel like I was shaking your hand. There, there are many different ways in which physical interaction can be embodied in, in um, VR. There's a pen 
that uh, this has been studied by the VR lab at Stanford, Jeremy Bellinson's um, Virtual Human Interaction Laboratory. This is the study's a little older, but they had this haptic feedback pen, and people were using it in physical space to look at a screen and clean off dirt on people's faces. And what they found was um, the amount of pressure people used to clean off the dirt on the virtual faces differed um, depending on the race of the face that you were looking at, the skin color. Um, so you can infer a little bit about um, bias as, a, as an, a measure of implicit bias. So my back to your question, <laughs> um, the metaverse will embody other senses besides vision, certainly audio. And if you think about it, it that's been, been there for a long time. And haptics um, is the next frontier. And who knows, maybe once we can plug our VR headsets into the olfactory areas of our brains, then we won't need uh, analog kind of inputs to our noses and our mouths, and you will even get those things as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So some are actually easier to implement in the metaverse and some more challenging. And yet there are some people who define the modern metaverse as an awesome online social experience. And in order to provide an awesome um, online social experience, we actually need both tangible and intangible experiences. And some of the senses, actually all the senses are, are important here. So I, I see the future a little bit broader. And I think the senses are going to be um, implemented, will, be, will play a major role in, um, in the metaverse. And not only that, um, the, um, the cross modality between among the senses will play a very important role in creating these user experiences. But talking about this, as I said, the metaverse is expected to give users an even better immersive experience. That's the whole idea. It's one of the big goals of, of, this, um, of this industry, meaning um, provide a much stronger connection with friends, relatives, coworkers, um, and even places in a more natural way. Now, of course, um, this space might not be 100% real, like the real world, but uh, will be a place where people want or would like to spend time in. So um, we will be uh, able to curate our realities, it seems, meaning we could add things, we could decide what things to delete, meaning things that we like, things we don't like, choose what to see in this virtual space, what not to see, what to hear, what not to hear, and also smell, taste, uh, touch, and as well. So with the metaverse, let us sort ourselves into our own reality tunnels. Should we be worried about that? Since I would be able to really filter out what I don't want to see or what I don't want to experience, how would this work out? What kind of- That is, that is that? an excellent question. So um, I'll take two steps back uh, and then come forward to this. I, I agree with you that all of the senses eventually will be essential in the metaverse. I just think technologically, it's gonna take us more time to develop the interfaces for uh, smell and, and taste, but- <laughs> But even and even touch, even touch, um, we'll get to it slowly. And as that's the one that's maybe at the turning point at the moment, 
Um, I'd like to focus on that one for this question. I think it's a great question because it's a metaphor for the, the kind of echo chamber problem with social media. We went from being a society where information was flowing in an unfiltered way relative to the last few years. So if a news, news channel put out a broadcast, it was a broadcast, right? It, it hit all the ears, most of the ears. Certainly in my field, uh, communication, we've known that people selectively tend to messages that align with their previous attitudes. You choose to read the Wall Street Journal if you're a little more right-leaning. You choose to read the New York Times if you're a little more left-leaning. That's been around for a long time. But because the algorithms of social media are so adept at recognizing trends in your behavior and then feeding you what they think you'll like, um, we've noticed that people get cut off from exposure to perspectives that are unlike their own. And we end up in these echo chambers, so to speak, meaning uh, everybody agrees with you in your little circle and you were rarely uh, confronted with the conflict, um, the, the, the kind of easy to address conflict and ideas that allows you to think more broadly. Okay, so that, that's where we are now. And you're, you're asking the question, what about the same dynamic but in our sensory experiences of the metaverse, will we end up with people who filter their experiences? This is truly a sci-fi question right here. Um, like we, we, we will, I definitely agree. We'll end up with people, uh, with communities, I should say, who value certain social norms that also relate to their sensory experiences that are completely unlike what most people are doing. Is that bad or is that good? On the one hand, um, it can be great. It can be great. Let's say there are communities that are ostracized for reasons that are beyond their control. Um, you know, you're, you're born into a certain body type or sexual orientation or gender identity, right? So having safe spaces where you can go and explore um, social interactions with like-minded people. We imagine that to be great in our kind of um, liberal progressive social mindset. Um, at the same time, the flip side, is, like just thinking on the social media side, there are hate groups. There are groups that are um, harmful to themselves, harmful to each other um, in, a, in, a, in a sensory experience world. I, I'm thinking to, to the show Orphan Black. Do you know this show? No, I don't. It's um, it's a it's a science fiction show about a woman who's a clone and meets her clone sisters, and they uncover their past and the history of the program that brought them into uh, being. And one of the groups that's involved in their creation is oh, I'm losing I'm losing the name for themselves, but they are kind of bio experimentalists. So they find ways to grow tails on themselves and to otherwise augment their bodies. And they're presented in the show, at least, as being a little bit too extreme, a little bit too unnatural, um, too much like cyborgs or, 
or even monstrous kind of self-creations, Frankenstein's um, avatars. <laughs> so I imagine that kind of thing might happen where these, where these cultural norms of, of humanity change and, and that might be scary to people. And is that good or bad? Um, like with all, I, I, I am not as prescient as many of my colleagues about these things. Um, so I can, the simplest answer I think here is that uh, like with all technology, it's a double-edged double sword. And as scholars um, in, in our position, as, as people who are not just writing academic papers, but also speaking to the public, I think we have a responsibility to promote the positive effects and to try to uh, diminish those effects which we believe are unethical or otherwise harmful to society, to our ability uh, to thrive and survive. Though, of course, there are many different ethical frameworks from which you can, you can kind of base your judgment. So, um, so in general, I would say neither good nor bad um, as, as a phenomenon in itself, but the resulting phenomena will be good or bad depending on your ethical framework. And so, um, so let's focus on the good. Hello, listener. It's me, but I'm an avatar. You probably learn about avatars in this podcast, but you can actually try them out, not just in video games, but in spaces like Zoom. I'm using Zoom to record this right now. This avatar I created with Ready Player Me. Remember in episode a long time ago, I talked to Timo Toke, the CEO of Wolf 3D. That's the company that makes Ready Player Me. I took a screenshot of myself with my camera, a selfie, I should say, and I created an avatar automatically, customized it in their app. Then I posted it in Animes. That's the software I'm using right now. They are the sponsor of this message and they are giving a 50% discount on subscriptions. You can try it for free, but if you want to subscribe, you enter Sparty Lab as the discount code. That's S-P-A-R-T-I-E Lab. So you can use a Ready Player Me avatar, like I mentioned. You can also upload your own VRM or live 2D models, or you can make avatars right in animes. For example, you could use the doge avatar <laughs> um and i don't know i mean it might have seemed like like a, a strange thing at first but but dogecoin is is still making bucks um but you could use the doge avatar or one of their very cool anthropomorphic animals such as the fluffo the raccoon totally detailed look at this it's so responsive people use these types of avatars to stream or go to zoom meetings or go to go to court cases and say i am not a cat there are also two-dimensional avatars like this raccoon or more anthropomorphic avatars that aren't even animals like this cute pandemic virus right here Corey, Corey the covid Maybe this one won't win you too many friends. I really like Kathy. She's quite a catch. You could choose whichever avatar you like. And then you could even apply some of the concepts like the Proteus effect or other phenomena related to avatars in the workplace to your uses of these avatars uh, based on what you've learned in this podcast. And 
Once again, if you want to try it out, go to Steam, download Animes, try it for free, and then if you want a subscription, you can get 50% off for a limited time by entering Sparty Lab in the discount code. Check it out. The question that remains is who decides how are we allowed to represent ourselves in this space? And how uh, are we uh, filtering our realities? Um, who decides what we are allowed to um, delete and keep? Who decides what we're allowed to own? So this actually sends us to, to the next question, which is how is this virtual space governed currently? How are its contents moderated at this point? And what kind of experiences does and can the metaverse give users? Again, currently. Currently. Oh, the, currently the metaverse is the wild, wild west. Um, and so the governance structures are just emerging, right? Uh, the rule of law is, is very libertarian. Um, it, cash rules everything around me, cream get the money, dollar, dollar bill, y'all to quote, quote Wu-Tang. Uh, <laughs> so there's so much money going into these metaverse technologies and the amount that people are spending, let's say, for example, on NFTs seems ridiculous to me as someone who doesn't have hundreds of <laughs> like Ethereum um, or, or Bitcoins or, or what, whatever is making these people so rich and able to spend $10,000 on a, a single piece of digital artwork or millions even. Um, mm, right. So, so it's the market. That's, that's what's governing much of this. And um, for better or worse, I think that that's great because it, it's allowing some of the business models and ideas about how the metaverse should operate, how NFT should be shared and traded, et cetera. It's, it's letting them um, fail fast and pivot. And uh, it's truly a Silicon Valley model, which, which as we know is quite successful at experimenting and eventually finding those unicorns that do change the world. At the same time, um, there's a danger in this model. There's a, there's a danger that we end up with to use, a, to, to use a web 2.0 metaphor again to help us think about 3.0. Um, we end up with an accumulation of user data without user ownership over that data that shifts power dynamics in a direction that's harmful to society. You could argue that maybe starting with Cambridge Analytica, we saw this happening. We saw uh, companies taking advantage of the troves of data that, that Facebook, Google, et cetera, are, are collecting on users and um, taking it from a simple advertising-oriented business model, which on paper is completely consistent with the way mass media has been supplemented for you know, over 100 years. Um, but then twisting it into mechanisms for political manipulation and spreading false information, um, you know, the whole fake news thing, et cetera. So, so there's a huge danger in losing control, like you said, over ownership of data. And now the data is going to be even more massive and discomforting. If, if I'm wearing a VR headset, and, and navigating a virtual space, you know so much about me. You know 
whether may I, or not I have a physical disability. You could you could probably predict whether I will develop certain um, certain physiological conditions, right? If I if I have some sort of tremor, you know, a lot of these with machine learning, a lot of these trends are predictable. And these aren't necessarily things that I'm, I want to give away, or maybe you know it's sexual orientation, right? You can tell from from where someone looks, and then if somebody doesn't want to discuss that, or 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 if the machine learning models are wrong, but these but the predictions are based on um, bad information, and then somehow that information is being used in ways to influence people against their will, or selling that data, that data becoming public in ways that make people uncomfortable, there's, there's a great risk of, um, of those things happening. So I think we have a long time before we see Web 3.0 being governed like a utility. Web 1.0 is certainly seen as a utility. ISPs Right, these are mostly they, they come from the telecom world. They inter, sorry, ISP internet service providers. They they're used to being treated as a utility. They're used to governments telling them what their rates can and can't be, and how to manage their uh, legal monopolies or oligopolies in those cases. Um, Facebook is grappling with that right now, and and I think they're in for a reckoning. I think they will become regulated as as some form of utility. Why? Because they, they do uh, provide a public good. They do have a large amount of power. So I, I don't know exactly how that will play out. We're just seeing that now. But eventually, maybe Web 3.0 and the metaverse will be governed in that way. Um, but it's going to be even harder. It, if, it, if you can't imagine the challenge of a, of a congressperson who, who grew up uh, watching black and white television, now wrapping their minds around social media and Twitter and TikTok even, right? Like I can barely wrap my mind around TikTok and I've been studying media since I was 20 years old. And so um, it's hard. And so governing that is going to be hard. NFTs in the metaverse is even more decentralized. There is no Mark Zuckerberg to bring on the stand and say, what's happening at your company? Because everybody owns their own little piece of it. There are companies, but if you get rid of one, there's so many of them. It's complete. It's like going from a, a concentrated media ownership model, such as um, telephony, to to a complete free market with hundreds of players. And so, it's scary. Oh, it is. It is scary and interesting at the same time, especially if we actually come from, from a scientific point of view. And as you said, it's always a double-edged sword. Um, any technology, in fact, has been like this. But I think this is the right time, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, by the way, that this is the right time to discuss this because how, how do we negotiate governance, right? As you, you mentioned, um, Facebook, well, Right, so we know that earlier this year, Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook will become a metaverse company, while also know that Apple is also moving in this direction. Snap intends to use AR for shopping experiences. Apple is going to come up with some gadgets uh, for this space next year and other companies will continue. So more and more companies are getting into this space. So this actually 
means that we have to take this more seriously. And in fact, um, I would say somewhat more recently, the Epic Games CEO, Tim Sweeney, said that uh, we actually need to have an open metaverse. And uh, we know that Epic actually launched an antitrust lawsuit against Apple to eliminate the about 30% App Store platform fees for all developers, right? And, and the I, idea believe is- they, I believe they won that lawsuit or, or maybe they lost the lawsuit, but Apple's still being required to uh, eliminate, eliminate those fees in the future, right? I don't really know what the out- real outcome was, but this is actually... This marks a very important point in the history of the metaverse. And um, many lawsuits in the future, I'm not, I'm not a law person, so I have a disclaimer here, but my belief is that many law people in the future or many such companies in the future will take this um, as a precedent. Uh, but um, Tim Sweeney says that we actually need um, to make platforms for games to be more open. That's his idea of an open metaverse. Um, and so, so I think there's an ironic twist in, in this dynamic. Your question is about governance, um, but also embedded in governance is standards. In, in, I teach this in my, uh, my intro media class as, as a common trend when we see new media industries emerge. For example, radio. We discover the technology of being able to send wireless radio signals. And early on, people are just generating their own technologies. They're using them as they please. The Titanic sinks. And this is a catalyst for recognizing that we need some governance around radio. Um, we, need, we need to make sure that it's being used for safe communications, at least in ship to shore or ship to ship technologies. At the same time, well, or well, shortly after, about uh, 10, 15 years later, we end up with the, um, I think it's the Federal Radio Communications Act of 1927, which creates standards for radio technologies. So now radios should be able to interoperate more clearly. We don't have a, a, a wide range of kind of radio headset uh, technology types in the same way that we have to choose DC or AC with electricity. These standards of technological uh, interoperation are essential for promoting a mass medium. So once everyone knows, okay, I'm going to use a USB plug for my computers, we don't have to have 27 different plugs. Um, it becomes more efficient for consumers. The cost of producing an additional unit of my product goes down. Um, that allows me to reduce my price, which means more people buy it. This it's called economies of scale, or we call it media economies of scale um, in, in, in these media technologies. That is the type of governance that we see happening at W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, which is essential for facilitating the interoperability of the web. So I often go to the web as our metaphor for thinking about the metaverse, because we need computers to talk to each other. That's the internet, right? <laughs> we have standards. Um, TCP IP, certain protocols for just making sure they send and receive signals in a way that we can all understand. Doesn't matter if they're being made by Microsoft or Apple, et cetera. But I'm not sure that's the same thing as governance, uh, governance, at least as how I interpret it. In some ways, I see Sweeney's call for openness and interoperability um, 
as a call for um, for opening the doors to the wild, wild west. Like, let's let, here's a good way to think about it. Uh, if we're using the U.S. geography as a metaphor, we've got this undeveloped western land where we know there's some gold, there's some people, but I want the government to build roads out there. I don't want the government, so I can go out there and make money. I don't want the government to send police and military out there though. That's governance um, that, that I think these companies uh, are not asking for that, that Facebook certainly doesn't want. They, and I do know that Fortnite or Epic um, thinks of Fortnite and, and maybe some of its other properties as being a part of the metaverse. Uh, have you seen, you don't just play Fortnite. They have concerts in Fortnite. Recently, my kids went to the Ariana Grande concert. Oh, they did? Yeah. Oh. Okay. That was so fun. They even let me have the controller for a few minutes, which is amazing. So, you know, you're flying around on this like rainbow colored pinata like donkey thing while this massive Ariana Grande, almost like you're in Gulliver's Travels or something. She's walking around singing and and you're part of that experience. And that um, that's a, a type of entertainment that goes beyond just gaming, shooting enemies. Right. Um Fortnite is, is a great platform for this. So is Facebook, so is VR chat and Second Life. We've been thinking about this for a long time. They want governance in the sense that they want infrastructure so they can interoperate, so that they can send more people to the wild, wild west. So they can build the hotels and the, the homes and the roads and the businesses and, and make money off that. Um, at the same time, they know it's gonna be even harder to be policed out there by governments. They know that the technological infrastructure for, for cryptocurrencies um, is it's in theory anonymous, though not really, um, but we, people can trade without being tracked. Um, they can certainly trade without a middleman, middle entity like a bank. Um, so the free market will reign and, and, and that's, that's a great opportunity for companies that are well-poised to make tons of money off this. <laughs> so there's my somewhat cynical, um, somewhat historical response. Yes, yes, that's true. Well, there is a lot to say and in this space and also a lot to research in this space. So now let's, let's move uh, to another point of great importance for this. Uh, metaverse, which is storytelling. How do you see the future of storytelling in this embodied internet? Um, Mark Zuckerberg somewhat recently used this term. Yeah, yeah, the embodied internet. That's another way to think about uh, the metaverse and storytelling. Imagine you are inside your favorite Netflix show. Maybe you can't change the plot so much, but you're surrounded by it. And you can move around with the characters and look at them from different angles and um, maybe go into rooms, certain rooms that, that, are, that are closed so you can explore and get different pieces of the story. And, and this is your favorite Netflix show. Let me think of one that I really like. I mean, it doesn't have to be Netflix. It can be Disney Plus. All right, so I'm in Mandalorian and... And I, and I get to watch the, the battle scenes from different angles. And that's, that's 
great, right? We love to consume media in interactive ways. We are inherently lazy at times. We don't, we, I don't want to be on my treadmill running and shooting all night long. Sometimes you want to sit on the couch and relax. And so the, these metaverse like embodied internet experiences will facilitate a form of entertainment that I think take some of the interactive storytelling elements that are so successful with video games um, but merge them with the cinematic, um, highly curated artistic experiences that we get from Hollywood, from, from these big production studios. Um, and, and, in, and in ways that'll be, that'll be great. That'll be transformative for better or worse, right? Double-edged sword. So I can give you a, an example. Recently in my, la in my last podcast episode, I interviewed people from um, Upworlds and Meta Shoe Studio, they make art galleries. Well, Upworlds hosts different virtual worlds and Meta Shoe uh, has an art gallery. And during the episode, they told me they were gonna have a tarot card reading. And so I went after the episode, I put on my quest and I walked around and not only was there art on the walls, which you could interact with and music that went along with these different elements. This was all through Mozilla Hubs, but there was also a host who, who was an actor, a performer, who did a tarot card reading for the audience. And it was so cool. I was, I was part of that kind of performative experience in virtual reality surrounded by this new scene. Um, and to me, that represents a new model of entertainment. That's not quite a movie. That's not quite a play. That's not quite a game. It's, it's a, a merger of all of those things. So in, in such an immersive experience, what do you think is going to be the extent of human autonomy and agency in this environment? We love our autonomy, especially here in the West. <laughs> uh, and, and so I think it, it depends on the context, autonomy and agency. Even when, when we're watching TV shows, I have autonomy and agency in the sense that I choose what I want to watch. At the same time, there are algorithms that influence my experience and, and reduce that autonomy and agency, such as the recommendation systems for the show I should watch next. In a video game, similar thing, right? I have autonomy and agency within the constraints of that coded space. I believe, um, I believe we will continue just like in the real world. We have limited levels of autonomy and agency, even, even in our, our physical apparatus, our bodies, right? We are often responding to cues that lead to automatic responses. We are, we are driven by heuristics. And, uh, and so the opportunities for true free will and choice, though this is getting into the philosophical question, I think are somewhat limited. And virtual worlds are no different, except that the environments are, are highly designed with those interactions in mind. So, um, so who knows, maybe you'll feel even more autonomous and agentic in virtual worlds because the designers will make you feel that way. 
<laughs> which is ironic, um, but perhaps that'll be more fulfilling than our current world where I feel like, oh, my boss is always telling me what to do. I, my kids are driving me nuts. My partner is not supportive enough. Oh, I go into this virtual world and I'm completely free to do as I please, right? That's super ironic because you are in a virtual environment that's literally been coded for people to constrain your behaviors according to the design. Uh, whereas the, the natural world in theory is natural, but, um, but I actually don't think the physical versus digital con, uh, distinction here is as important as kind of the, the human experience in these spaces. Yes, absolutely. So let's, let's go back to, to your lab's party. Uh, what does it stand for actually? And in what way the work you and your research group um, do at your lab connect with the metaverse? Sure, yeah, so it stands for the social and psychological approaches to research on technology interaction effects. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, and it's a playoff of our, our mascot, Sparty, uh, the MSU mascot, spelled with a Y though, and technology interaction. So social and psychological technology interaction essentially just means people using technology. And we try to keep it broad, even though I focus very much on avatars within virtual spaces. Um, I don't actually study a single technology. I study the interaction with those technologies. The technology itself can change. So I'm interested in the psychological effects of using these technologies, such as the Proteus effect. Um, that's one that I've studied significantly in my lab, looking at how people are influenced by their avatar's identities. If my avatar's taller, I'll negotiate more aggressively. If my avatar's uh, an inventor, looks kind of intelligent, I'll come up with more creative ideas in a brainstorming task. So um, not just replicating those effects, but understanding why they happen and in what context they're, they're happening uh, the strongest. So this in, this is the actual lab space. Well, this is a, a picture because I couldn't get into the lab today, but um, but we'll bring participants in. We'll sit them in front of that big screen there and, and have them play some games and we'll manipulate something about that game. Um, half of them, this is a study that we did not too long ago, we'll have them create an avatar that represents yourself, uh, how you actually are. The other half, we say, create an avatar that represents the story of the game. Um, so it's a it's destiny. That's what we use in that one study. So it's a space shooter. And then before they participate in, in playing the game, we have we introduce a, a prompt about a stereotype, a gender stereotype. This is something else I've studied because I'm interested in toxicity and gender stereotypes um, and kind of the harmful effects in games. So we introduce a, a toxic message you know, um, like you suck at gaming or, or a sexist toxic message, like, uh, like women shouldn't be playing this kind of thing. And we see how does that affect not just their behavior in the game and not just their behavior in the game, interacting with the avatar that they're using, but also after the game, how do they feel about non-game things? So how well do women do in computer science, in math, in engineering? And what we find is this is uh, consistent with Claude Steele's stereotype threat theory, which has been su supported in hundreds of studies. When we trigger a stereotype about gender, it makes people perform worse, especially if that stereotype is subtle. They don't really notice it. Um, 
But now with avatars, if we reduce the emphasis on their own gender, so if we have them make the avatar that's consistent with the game story instead of themselves, we can buffer against that effect. So the fundamental conclusion of that study and then uh, many others that I've done that are always kind of all kind of leading toward this argument is that avatars are perhaps the most essential piece of the psychological experience of a virtual world of the metaverse because they are the, the um, container for your self-concept and your self-concept is constantly changing. When I'm with my parents, I act differently than when I'm with my friends, right? So, um, so your self-concept is cued by what you see in your avatar and we can use that as, as technologists, as designers, game designers, metaverse designers to lead people toward behaviors that we, we want. Um, hopefully that isn't just getting people to buy more crap, right? Like maybe, hopefully it's reducing toxicity in virtual spaces, finding ways to make people feel a little bit more responsible for uh, maintaining a reputation or for not promoting um, sexual or racist or other stereotypes that we know are harmful. And we know they're not just harmful to the game, they're harmful to attitudes about uh, men and women in society in, in terms of STEM uh, and gender effects, in terms of race and abilities in, in intellectual or academic contexts. We know there's so much harm that is done by the toxicity in these spaces. And, and so the Sparty Lab has been working toward this argument that we can reduce the harm by thinking about design principles, particularly with avatars, but with other contexts of these virtual spaces as well. Yeah, this is a great space to be in, for sure, uh, research-wise at least. So how can our listeners learn more about Sparty and where they can find you? They can, uh, they can come to our website, um, Sparty Lab, uh, just Google Sparty Lab, S-P-A-R-T-I-E Lab. Uh, maybe we can put it in the episode notes. I have a podcast too. Yeah. Um, this is for your podcast. We're, we're cross-podcasting here, um, which is so cool. Roxanne, thank you. I never get to talk on my podcast. <laughs> I'm always interviewing people. So my listeners uh, might be very tired of me by now. And uh, I don't know, maybe... Maybe uh, this is a good idea to do in the future. Maybe um, I'll ask other people to interview me, but, um, but I really do appreciate this opportunity to talk about my attitudes because I'm constantly learning from other people. Is that kind of what, what you like about your podcast? You're learning? These yeah, things? yeah. well, that, that's the idea of podcasting. We learn ourselves and also um, we create a community around these ideas and also we promote other people. And um, I also like um, in the future to, to bring in people who probably are just at the, um, uh, in the early phases of their careers, but they've done something interesting that they have to share with the world. So this is something that um, it really brings a lot of joy. And again, it creates a community. So yeah. thank you so much for your time, Ravi. I really appreciate you being on the show. This was great. Thank you so much. Um, just on that last point, um, one thing I've done, which I really enjoy, and I, I didn't do this on purpose, is occasionally I have a student spotlight on my podcast. 
And I find that actually gets a lot of play. I, I usually do it when I can't find a guest on time and I'm like, ah, quick student, please can I interview you? <laughs> but those, those do get some, some good simulation. And, and we learn a lot from our students as well. So that's my favorite sure that, part. That's well, a great idea. Thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to repost this on SpartyCast. And I hope we talk soon. Sure, thank you. All right, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing me talk about the metaverse as much as I enjoyed hearing myself speak. <laughs> and I also hope that what I'm saying is not too vague. I know that at times I try to hedge my arguments. Technology is a double-edged sword. In other words, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, right? Like you could critique that response and say, Robbie, take a stand, please. And, you know, if I, if I were pressed to truly take a stand, I, I would probably skew positive. I maybe have a naive faith in the human condition, the ability to eventually right our wrongs and improve our situation, though it takes time and generations and there are ups and downs. Um, but I believe through the ages that technology has made our lives better. Um, and so I'm optimistic about the metaverse. Will some bad stuff go down? Probably, that's okay. Um, I mean, bad stuff isn't okay, but in the long run, I think it's okay. I think it's okay that we will probably have to deal with accumulation and power um, in terms of owning our data or controlling our financial interactions accumulation and power over those things that might not be great for everyone in society at that moment, because I am optimistic that we will correct, that our society, our technologists, our policymakers, our professors, our uh, vibrant students will create cultures that respond to and even proactively um, guide us toward positive outcomes. Kumbaya. Let's all connect the world in one massive network of happiness <laughs> through the metaverse. All right. So that's our episode for the day. Thank you very much for paying attention, um, especially during these, these trying times of October as we all get ready for weather. Well, not we all. If you're in the global south, then maybe it's totally different. But as people at my latitude get ready for weather change, an increasing number of viruses, such as the one that's ravaging my home right now and keeping me at home. Um, good luck with all of that. And, um, and of course, the virus, uh, the COVID virus, which is not what we have. Our kids have a stomach flu, but um, we're fortunate for that. And we're fortunate that vaccines are available and you know, we can't all just live in the metaverse. <laughs> even, though, even though it might seem like a good option, um, as we know, Wade Watts was not, was not living in a great world, even though the metaverse there was pretty awesome. Um, it, it really matters what the world around you is like. So let's pay attention to that too, and maybe find ways to use NFTs and Web 3.0 to enhance uh, our environmental sustainability, our social structures. Um, gosh, 
really going pro-social on this one. <laughs> I've already blabbed at you for super long. Thanks for listening. Have a great evening or morning or whatever time of day or planet you're on. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world. <laughs>